0: All right, and we are back with another edition of Exploring Faith, Pursuing Grace. I am Lee Grant, joined by my ever inimitable, often imitated or attempted to be imitated, but never duplicated, Kevin Pendergrass. Brother Kevin, it is good to be back with you once again, man.
1: And aren't we thankful for that, too? Just ask a lot of of people, man. They will be happy to know that that is, is not the case.
0: There's only one Kevin Pendergrass. That's right. Oh, man. Oh, man.
1: Well, you know, we're I'm excited about tonight's podcast because this is a, uh, a topic that I think a lot of people have struggled with. A lot of people have, I know, have asked me about over my ministry career, and it's something that I have seen abused a lot. And that is going to be Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 talking about what do we do with with, with people who use these passages in such a way to try to get their way because they claim that they are offended. And since you offended them, then you need to bow to what they think is right, or you need to avoid doing something that they think is wrong. And what ends up happening, Lee, you call this the tyranny of the weaker brother, because it ends up being a situation where the weaker brother is the one that ends up leading the pack, unfortunately, in many cases.
0: Yes. Now, that- that moniker of, of this passage describing that concept of the tyranny of the weaker brother. I can't really lay claim to assigning that moniker to it, but I found it very fitting. I like um, it. It's yeah, well, it, it is. And it's an, an extremely apt description of how Romans 14 and first Corinthians eight have been abused over the years and how I used to abuse these passages oh, yeah. myself. Too. And it's funny because whenever it's your own predilections that you're working hard to maintain or or support as liberty it will it's not an abuse at all but the moment someone uses these passages in the same way i used to to try to tell me that my liberty is a stumbling block that i'm putting in their way well all of a sudden i'm clutching my pearls i'm like i well now i'm offended and then before you know it everyone's offended and and no one really gets anywhere but um No, I first came across this moniker whenever I was reading this, this passage and just trying to figure it out and just trying to break it down and just couldn't get it. I found an article that was, that's written by a, I believe he was a Presbyterian minister and, and he did, it's a 14 page article. We're going to have a link to it in the show notes and the episode notes for this, for this uh, episode. And. That was the title of the article, The Tyranny of the Weaker Brother, and it's a 14-page exegesis of the Greek that gets into the context not only of the culture at the time, but also the context of Scripture, the direct context, the remote context. It's just a really, really good article that helped me reorient my understanding towards what exactly it was that Paul was trying to communicate in Romans 14, so we'll link to that, but um, R.C. Sproul, who is a Reformed theologian, has also referred to this idea as the tyranny of the weaker brother. And like you, I think it fits really, really well because so many people lean on Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8. They trot these passages out whenever anybody does something that they don't like. It's something that just gets up in their crawl that they just don't appreciate. And the thing that comes to mind and what I dealt with with this passages the most is the idea and the concept. And we'll talk a little bit more about it whenever we get there. Um, but this concept of eating in the church building, um, there are some good brethren that I know that love God with every fiber of their being. They have a real zeal and a desire to serve, to serve the Lord. And we used to worship with these brethren years ago, and there was another division over another topic or another doctrine that led to them starting their own group. Well, they started their own congregation not too far away from where our building was. It was only something like 12 miles away, and this is in rural Oklahoma. Uh, so it's it's not like there were a, a mile, or a, or what's the word I'm looking for? There, it wasn't like there were 50 churches between us and them. There was like our church and maybe one or two more over that 11, 12-mile stretch of highway, and then there's their building. Yeah. well. We they started to distance themselves and we would have gospel meetings or or, you know, special preachers or, or different guests come in and preach for us on Sundays or, or whenever else. They started to distance themselves from us and they wouldn't come and support our meetings anymore. And everything was still cordial with them. And we began to ask them why that was. And they said, well, afterwards, you have snacks you eat in the church building and that's a sin and that's wrong. And that as we tried to work towards reconciling our issues that we had between one another, this was one of the things that we discussed. And Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 were passages that both sides of the discussion used to try to bolster and make their point. So what I have seen and what I have found, and I'm sure you have too, man, is that whenever someone gets upset about something, when they see something that they don't like, something that's a trivial matter. Or um, a matter of opinion, as some passages put it, or some translations put it, people are going to go to these passages to try to prove that what my perspective is and what my predilection is, this is right. What you believe and what the liberty you're exercising is causing offense to me, so you need to give it up. You need Mm -hmm. to quit doing that thing because I'm offended by it and you don't need to offend my conscience. Yeah, and, it's, it's,
1: it's the proposition that if you ever offend someone, then you're in the wrong and you need to give up the freedom. And especially if you know that something offends somebody, you never need to do it. That's yeah. really the proposition. And that's what I believe for many years, just like a lot of these topics where we're discussing. We, we were taught to believe and understand Scripture in a certain way. But then when we actually start understanding it within context— And also pragmatically to see, okay, does that even work? Because it comes gets to a point where who wins out? Because you can say, well, that offends you, and I can say, well, this it offends me that you don't do this, and you can say, well, it offends me that you do this, and I'll say, well, I'm the weaker brother; you need to do what I want you to do, and you'll say, well, you're the weaker brother; you need to do what I what you want me to do, and it goes back and forth and back and forth. In fact, this is a true story. Of uh, I've, 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 no joke, man, there was a congregation one time. I'm not going to say exactly what the specific issue was, but there was an issue. Uh, some believed it was doctrinal, others didn't. But there was this issue within a church and there were two sides to it. One believed that it should be done in the church and that it was essential. Another believed it shouldn't be done in the church and that it was sin. So you had one saying it had to, another saying you it cannot be done. (laughs) And so you had one group saying, you know, okay, well, you may disagree, but you need for my conscience to do this because I think it's essential. And the other said, well, okay, you you think it shouldn't be done, but for my con or you think it should be done, but I think it's wrong to do, so for my conscience, you need to give it up. What happens? Well, Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 cannot be talking about that because it presents itself with a impossible uh, scenario. And yeah. so let's go ahead and read this. I'll let you first read Romans 14 and then I'll read 1 Corinthians 8. We're not going to give commentary while we read. We're just, Lee's going to read Romans 14, all of Romans 14. I'll read all of 1 Corinthians 8. They're short chapters and then we'll break it down so you know exactly what we're talking about before we get too deep into the context here.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Romans 14, I have really grown in my affinity and appreciation for the new revised standard version. So that's why I'm going to be reading from, um, I really you're like gonna, you're it. You're going to be
1: reading from the message next week.
0: Oh, man. I'll just wait till I read from the Klingon version of the scriptures. You know it's been translated into Klingon, don't you, for all our Star Trek fans out there?
1: I, I do, do not. I didn't even know that. You didn't know was that? Until You say it, said Star Trek. So I...
0: Oh, well, I thought you were a nerd. I guess not. You got to turn in your nerd card. Okay, so anyway, Romans 14. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> New Revised Standard Version, beginning in verse 1. Welcome those who are weak in the faith, but not for the purpose of quarreling over opinions. Some believe in eating anything, while the weak eat only vegetables. Those who eat must not despise those who abstain, and those who abstain must not pass judgment on those who eat, for God has welcomed them. Who are you to pass judgment on servants of another? It is before their own Lord that they stand or fall, and they will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make them stand. Verse 5, some judge one day to be better than another, while others judge all days to be alike. Let all be fully convinced in their own minds. Those who observe the day observe it in honor of the Lord. Also, those who eat, eat in honor of the Lord, since they give thanks to God, while those who abstain, abstain in honor of the Lord and give thanks to God. We do not live to ourselves and we do not die to ourselves. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again so that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother or sister or you? Why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each of us will be accountable to God. Verse 13, let us therefore no longer pass judgment on one another, but resolve instead never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of another. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. If your brother or sister is being injured by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. Do not let what you eat cause the ruin of one for whom Christ died. So do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not food and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The one who thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and has human approval. Let us then pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for you to make others fall by what you eat. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that makes your brother or sister stumble. The faith that you have, have as your own conviction before God. Blessed are those who have no reason to condemn themselves because of what they approve. But those who have doubts are condemned if they eat because they do not act from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. That's Romans 14, verses 1 through 23. Kevin, it's all yours, brother.
1: All right, and the reason we're going to read 1 Corinthians 8 is because we both believe that Paul is addressing a similar situation and that both of these contexts uh, parallel each other quite nicely. So we're going to go ahead and read 1 Corinthians 8, and then we're going to talk about them. 1 Corinthians 8, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge, but this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in the heavens or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things are and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all are th- all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God, for we are no worse off if we do not eat, no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, he will not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to, or excuse me, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and sisters and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother or sister stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make them stumble.
0: Well, Kevin, it's plain. You got to give it up.
1: Bible says it, that settles
0: it. It settles it, man. No, that's no, that's an excellent reading. And that sort of sets the stage. And I think our listeners now, if they're not familiar with these passages, which I would assume that that most are, because these are fairly well-known passages of Scripture, especially within the churches of Christ, because these are passages that are preached on. And I know I used to take them out of context and make them say things that Paul really didn't say. And whenever I began to look at these passages in a closer context, it became more clear to me that this isn't a limiting factor on liberties that people possess in matters of indifference. And and what I mean by that is those questionable things that some translations put it in Romans 14 and 1, those matters of opinion, those things that are not sinful in and of themselves, those things that there's there's no dog in the fight, there's no horse in the race. It doesn't matter. These are things that do not matter at all. If I wake up in the morning and if I eat bacon or if I eat eggs or if I eat a bowl of cereal, it does not matter. None of those things are sinful in and of themselves. If I wear leather shoes or if I wear sandals, if none of those things matter, it's those things that do not matter. That's what Paul's talking about here. And it's the liberty that we have to do those things. It's not a repudiation against those things. It's, it's rather a, a admonition to both those strong Christians and those weak Christians in general not to bind their liberty as something that is absolute on others. If I think something is wrong, but it's not wrong in and of itself, I can't say, Kevin, you're not allowed to do this anymore. If I think there's something that you must do or something I must do, I can't say, well, Kevin, you must do this now. You have to do it. it. It would be akin to me waking up at six in the morning to go lift or lift weights or go to a jiu-jitsu class and saying, well, Kevin, you need to start lifting weights. The Bible says bodily exercise profiteth a little, and you need to go and start lifting weights, Kevin. If you don't do it, you're sinning. And I'm, I worry for your soul. We're going to have to take you before the elders, and we're going to we're gonna have to do something about this. We're, to, we're looking at a Matthew 18 situation here. That's what it's talking about. I'm binding something on you that is not in and of itself required or demanding that you, that you refrain from something that is not in and of itself sinful. It's a message that goes to both parties here.
1: One thing that I've always found fascinating with this passage is that people have always defined what is and what isn't a doctrinal issue based upon what they already believe and so they'll go to Romans 14 and say well we can agree to disagree on this because this isn't a doctrinal issue. And then someone else will say well no we can't use Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 because that's talking about things that aren't doctrinal issues. <laughs> yeah. And and one thing that I want to point out which I would ag- I would agree with what you're saying in the sense that Paul is saying that we can agree to disagree on the specific issues, but in context, especially to the Jews and the Gentiles as well, they would have understood these issues not as opinionated issues, meaning that there's no right or, right or wrong, but they would have understood these as doctrinal issues. And the reason I bring that up is because we have to change the way we understand the word doctrine and doctrinal issues. Because the word doctrine just means teaching. I mean, if we're going to put it in layman's terms, it's just teaching. So the fact that Paul is talking about it means he's teaching, which means it's doctrinal. So when you look at it from that perspective, this is doctrine. But also, look at the specific issues Paul's dealing with. He's dealing with holy days. He's dealing with eating meats. Uh, most in Romans fourteen believe here he's dealing with some of maybe the uh, the kosher laws, and then of course in First Corinthians eight where he's dealing uh, he's dealing more with meat sacrificed to idols, which would have been more dealing with the Gentiles. But what you're what you're dealing with here, and what you're seeing take place, is Paul is actually talking about true bona fide doctrinal issues of their day, which is hard for us to understand because. Most Christians today don't really have problems with eating meat sacrificed to idols because culturally that's not part of our society. We don't, we don't even think about that. We don't even have to worry about that. And, and, and same thing when it comes to, to Jewish holidays and things of that nature, unless we're Jews uh, who are, who are Christian, then we, we probably haven't really had to deal much with that. And so it's easy for us to forget the importance of these issues to the original audience. I, I've seen some people take these contexts and apply it to nothing more than the color of the carpet at the church building or the yeah. preacher's or the preacher's salary or things of that nature. We've got to understand, I, I think that Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 is talking about true, what we would say doctrinal issues. Um, meaning that these are issues that were pertinent to them. It were it was issues that they were currently dealing with, issues that they had tradition, issues that they had conviction, issues that pertain directly to their faith, and especially First Corinthians eight, Paul starts off by saying that we we know that everyone has knowledge. Knowledge though puffs up, but love builds up, and so he's already starting to explain that knowledge is important, no doubt about it. But what's even more important than knowledge is love. And we'll we'll come back to that a little bit later. But I I just want to make the point that we shouldn't dismiss Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 and say, oh, well, this is just talking about things like, you know, how much you pay a preacher or if you should, you know, if you should, what color the carpet should be or if you should have worship at 10 o'clock or 9 o'clock. This this goes well past those types of things, and it, it w- it's something that would have directly affected them.
0: Well, and I'm I'm really really appreciate you making that more clear because as you're going through and explicating those those terms and and the context of this, you did a whole lot better job about that in delineating doctrinal issues versus you know those superfluous issues than what I did because. That's often how we see it. And I still understand it to be something that it, it's talking about these things are are things that we don't need to get, you know, all bent out of shape over. Yeah. And and so often I'm really glad that you made that delineation because so well, and, often and, Oh, go ahead.
1: Well, and I was gonna say, and I think that's that's the point that I would make is that there are so many doctrinal issues that we don't need to to fight about um that we, there's Paul saying look i'm not asking you to give up your conviction and Paul's even saying that there is a right and there is a wrong on these issues you know it it is definitive objective truth that there is nothing wrong to eat meat sacrificed to idols so you know it's not a matter of opinion in the sense of there's no truth there is objective truth Paul lays forth and says look it is there is nothing wrong in and of itself, eating meat, sacrifice, but <laughs> not everyone has that knowledge. There are some whose conscience is weak. Some still believe different things. And because of that, dot, 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 this is how it should be handled. And so that that's why I think this passage is so, so vital to Christian unity, because we want to categorize uh, Christian doctrine versus Christian opinion and all these different things. But what we really see is that within Scripture— doctrine oftentimes is something that we are able to be agree to disagree over, um, specifically these issues here. I mean, these would have been considered worship issues. I mean, you talk about Jewish holidays, you know, you're talking about things that were really important to the original audience. And so the fact that there was objective truth to these issues didn't mean that they always had to agree with that objective truth. They were able to still work with one another despite their disagreements because, within their because,
0: convictions. Yeah,
1: be, because these things did not affect the the actual life of a Christian, or it shouldn't have. It was, but it shouldn't have.
0: Well, and I think that 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 really what you said gets to, that really illustrates the point and gets to what I was trying to communicate with the adage of going to the gym. Are there some people that might elevate that to the point of being a doctrinal salvation issue? I mean, I can see how someone could take that passage in Timothy out of context. Bodily exercise profits a little bit, but godliness is, you know, great gain is profitable for all things. You know, I can see how someone could take that and say, well, you see, there it says bodily exercise profitable for a little. You need to do it. You need to exercise. If you don't do it, you're sinning. And in a way, that's kind of what they were doing with these issues. These, you know, we look at this idea, and like you said, in that context, with meat being sacrificed to idols, that's not something we really think about here. That's not something that's an that's an issue in America. Maybe it is in some other countries, and some uh, in maybe some areas of the third world or the second developing world, or in other rural places overseas. Maybe there's still some idolatry that goes on where meat being sacrificed to idols, where this might actually apply there in a a very specific sense. But meat in and of itself being sacrificed to idols is no big deal, as Paul said. It's nothing. But in their minds, it was a very big deal, which is why Paul speaks to those terms. That's why Paul talks about this issue because apparently it was causing some problems it was causing a rift in the church then this is like you said they would consider this a worship issue they would consider this a doctrinal issue and in church of christ speak this is like a discussion about whether or not we can use instrumental music within worship Mm
1: -hmm. yeah in
0: their minds that's how they would look at that that's a matter of opinion It, it doesn't really matter it's not really here nor there And in terms of instrumental music, in my opinion, it's not really here or there either, but not everybody has that knowledge. You know, you can take some of these other doctrinal issues and you can plug it into meat sacrifice to idols and get a lot of the same thing and end up with the same result or the same mindset that we are to have. So thank you for making that more clear. You definitely communicated that better than I did. So I appreciate it, man.
1: No, well, hey, I, I've just, I've have always used that passage to, in times past, or not always, I used to use that passage to say, hey, this. well, th- these are not doctrinal issues, and and, and when people, what ends up happening when someone hears that is they go, oh, okay, well, this means this is stuff that I don't think is important. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's usually how that's translated because it's, it's, it, it, it almost becomes frivolous at that point. It's, oh, okay, well, Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8, they really don't have a major impact on my life. It's just stuff that really doesn't matter. Um, whereas the original audience would have been like, no, this, this is stuff that like really matters to, to some of these Christians. It would have been the things that, that only matter. But the question is, is it a, is it a, uh, Holy Spirit issue? Is it a fruit of the Spirit issue? And uh, Paul's going to go on to say it's not. But within this context, now that we've this established here, you, you do have people who are believing diverse things. Paul is teaching that there is a truth to all of these issues, that there is a right and there is a wrong, but that they don't have to agree on exactly what that right is. And in some cases, they, they need to be willing to allow disagreement. In fact, that's the only way you can have unity is in diversity by allowing a certain amount of disagreement. Otherwise you have uniformity, which is impossible when it comes to issues pertaining to Christianity. Um, for one reason, that's not the way the Bible's written. For another reason, many things are situational and what's right in one situation may not be right in another. Uh, but and, and by the way, even with this issue in Acts chapter 15, when Paul was called upon to be a part of the Jerusalem council, he actually said that you shouldn't eat meat sacrificed to idols in any sense. And that was written to Gentiles in, in different locations. And so even Paul himself, we see is handling Roman in Romans 14 and first Corinthians eight d- differently than he is in, uh, acts, 15. acts 15. Yeah. But the point being is that what do you do then? Do, does this mean that the person who is always considered the quote unquote, weaker brother, the one that isn't sure, the one that is is maybe cautious, is is that brother or sister? Are they the ones that always have the final say in all spiritual matters? Is that what Paul is saying here, Lee?
0: No. Yeah, well, and if you take that idea and you make that application and apply it consistently, you end up with an untenable position. And I know whenever I was talking to my father-in-law about this, he and I had a conversation you know, a while back concerning, um, concerning unity and concerning fellowship. And one of the things I asked him, and it kind of gets into that video that Rick actually had, mm-hmm. yeah. had done a while back the yeah, with the chairs. Um, but I asked him, you know, the, and this is at the point where I was still very much within the one cup fold and still ascribed to that particular doctrine, whenever I was there, I said, you know, one of the things I've been wondering about is, is, you know, where do we have fellowship and where do we not? Because, and this, this echoes a lot of the conversations you and I had had before we started the podcast and a lot of what you get to in your book. Um, Whenever we have fellowship with someone, what is that fellowship predicated upon? Is it predicated upon a like-mindedness in perfect uniformity with one another? Is it predicated on a perfect, you know, coalescence of ideas and ideologies I said, it can't be because I said, Steve, there are things that you believe that I don't. And there are things I believe that you don't. And those are things that we say, oh, well, that's all fine. We can agree to disagree. We still have unity with one another. We still have fellowship. I said, but the digressives, which is what we call those who were parts of uh, the churches of Christ, who use cups and classes, individual communion cups and have <laughs> Bible class. We call them digressives. Um, I said, but the digressives would say that, that they can extend fellowship to us. And a lot of them would, I mean, I know that there are some within the mainline camp that would not extend fellowship to those of the one cup persuasion, but all of them that I knew would. So I'd say they, they extend fellowship to us and they say, well, we can have fellowship with you and say, oh no, 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 no. We can't have fellowship with you until you give up your individual cups in your classes. Mm-hmm. I said, and we see that as being the right-minded way to do it. And we invoke Romans 14 to make that point. We say, you have to give that up. That's a stumbling block. It's offensive. It violates our conscience. You have to give that up so we can have fellowship, so we can have unity. I said, but then within our One Cup group, you have those of the no exception position with marriage, divorce, and remarriage. We extend fellowship to them and say, well, we can have fellowship with you because you do communion the same way we do, and you don't have Bible classes. But they say, oh, no, 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 no. We can't have fellowship with you because you don't You know, you recognize an exception to marriage, divorce, and remarriage where there is none. You have to give up your exception doctrine in order for us to have fellowship. And then within the no exception group, you have subclasses and subclasses. And so how deep does that go? How many permutations does it go? How many things have to be given up? I mean, does it mean that the most narrow-minded with the most narrow definition are the arbiters of truth and application of that truth?
1: Well, That's ultimately
0: where you end up.
1: Well, let me throw one more idea within what you're saying that even complicates matters further, because a lot of us in when we when I was in the quote unquote mainstream churches of Christ, we would say we will fellowship the non we call them non institutional churches in the one cup congregations as long as they didn't bind that practice on us. And so if they wanted to use one container, if they didn't want to eat in the church building, and if they didn't, if, if that was fine, there was nothing wrong with those things. But if they said that we were lost, then now they were lost because we couldn't have fellowship with them because they're binding where God has not bound. <laughs> and so we were always taught, you can have fellowship with some of those brethren and, you know, brothers and sisters in Christ who do those things, who, who, who they may only use one container. Well, there's nothing wrong with using one container, but if they think that we're wrong for using multiple containers, now they're wrong and we cannot fellowship them. And so it's, it's this, I mean, it's this never ending just cycle of division because, you know, it's, well, well, we'll do this if you do this. And you do this if I, and I mean, it's, well, who's going to give up what? Because the, the one cuppers were asking us to give up our multiple containers. And we were asking you not to give up your one cup, but your conviction that you, you that we were lost. And yeah. so, so who wins, you know, who who is the weaker brother in that situation? And in the debate, when I debated the, the one cup, I actually brought this up. I said that I, I am... Uh, you know, I, I I think that we could all be unified, and I said, I, I even said this. I said I would be willing to use one container for the Lord's Supper and join with you if you are willing to come down forward and say you are the weaker brother how many people you think came down forward and said that
0: (laughs) probably very few but dude here's what's so interesting another and i'm not going to say who this person was but i had a really similar conversation with somebody about a different topic and the whole weaker brother card was invoked and it was it was over a disagreement on on uh, man i don't really want to to I'm trying to think of how much detail I can give without, without risking exposure of the party with which this conversation was had. But it, it was over a particular topic or a particular idea in which we did not agree at all. And it, it got heated as well. And one of the things he was doing is, is he was, he was demanding that that I acquiesce to his position and his conviction Mm -hmm. And what, and what he was, and usually if someone has an issue with something like it, uh, this isn't, this isn't the idea of going to someone's house and they want you to take your shoes off before you walk into their house. I mean, it's, it's not something like that. Like this was, this had to do with something that was just fundamentally absurd. And a lot of times I'll acquiesce to people, but this was untenable. I said, no, that's not, uh, that doesn't work for me. That's not something that I am willing to do. Not because I'm offended or or not because it it would cause me offense to do that thing, but because it is absolutely ridiculous that you would be offended by this. Like that just that I'm incredulous over that. That's, that's absolutely wild to me. And he said, well, I'm the weaker brother in this case. (laughs) So you really should. And I said, the fact that you're saying you are the weaker brother means you're not the weaker brother. You've been a Christian longer than I have. Like no, like you are not the weaker brother in this case. The weaker brother is one who does not have knowledge. The weaker brother is one who is ignorant of a particular thing. This is a matter of a difference of opinion. You're not the weaker brother. So yeah, there are people, they didn't play uh, that card whenever you asked them to come down, but there are people that that will play that card and say, well, I'm the weaker brother, so you should acquiesce to my demands. Yeah. And if you follow that rabbit trail to its logical conclusion, you end up you end up bending to the will of those with the most strict and stringent view of Scripture. That's what ends up happening, and nobody is willing to do that except those who have the most stringent views of Scripture. Yeah. And usually those that do have that perspective because of a lack of understanding, a knowledge of the context.
1: Well, and people use this, to get their way is what it comes down to. And I can get yeah. pretty fired up talking about this because this is one of, this is one of the things that solidified the fact I did not want to be an employed minister. And, and I mean, I've i got like a list now. I think there's 1,333 <laughs> reasons or something like that. But I, I was, I was at one congregation preaching and I had used a, an illustration. I'm a big Alabama football fan. Football is upon us. And I'm a huge Alabama football fan. And I had just made a joke about Alabama and Albert. And after it was over, one of the members of the church came up just all in a tizzy. I mean, she was, she was uh, visibly upset and, and, she said, "I cannot believe you brought up Alabama football." She goes, "I'm an Auburn fan, and you degraded me, and you degraded my family up there." And she did, and by the way, I did not. Do good gracious! Like, I, Auburn fans <laughs> were laughing, and so, in fact, I had some friends in the audience who were Auburn fans. I'm like, "Hey, this this lady came up and said this to me." And they just started laughing. I'm like, "No, you were just, you know, clearly you were you were making a funny joke," but it got it got to the point where, which this can kind of lead into a different subject, but I mean, you know, people. Those who tend to be most sensitive are the ones who use these verses to actually continue to to make their to uh to to propagate their sensitivity and to justify it and to and almost to say well even Paul says if this if something offends me you shouldn't do it in fact she brought up I don't know if she brought this passage up specifically but she did say well the Bible says if you offend someone you know you need to apologize and you don't need to do it anymore. And she said, so you, you've offended me in saying this. And I thought my first inclination was how immature. And this was an older lady, <laughs> um, you know, just just how immature. Of course, you know, I'm, I'm trying to this was when I was not as Christocentric, but I was still trying to live a grace centered life. And so I did. I said, well, look, that was not my intent. I, I, I am sorry you were offended by that. That wasn't my intent. I was just trying to be funny. And. You know, clearly you're the only one who took it that way. And I did bring that up to her. I'm like, you know, you you're the only one who took it that way. And so I I'm I'm sorry about that. But maybe there needs to be a little maturity on your part as well um, as to when you're listening to a speaker, try to take things within context. But it ended up well. We had a good conversation. Um, you know, thankfully I didn't have to preach there anymore. But the <laughs> the, the the point though is is that this has just become a weapon. People have weaponized this passage to get what they want. And whenever they get mad, people do this to, to elderships all the time. They'll go up and say, well, the preacher did this and he offended me. Or the preacher didn't talk to me as much. Uh, you know, so-and-so didn't talk to me. So-and-so made me mad. Uh, the Bible class is starting late. That offends me. Whatever. I mean, there's there's a million and one different things and scenarios that if you're listening to this, you're probably thinking, yep, I know what you're talking about. and You're probably thinking about scenarios right now, too, Lee. But there's, oh, dude. there's, there's so many. But, but the point is people have weaponized this. And so why is, is that not a proper usage of Romans 14 or of 1 Corinthians 8?
0: Well, it's not a proper usage because that is nowhere near what Paul is talking about in context. He's talking about maintaining unity in spite of differing convictions. He's not talking about getting upset over someone cracking a joke about Alabama and Auburn football. He's not talking about getting upset if someone eats in the church building. He's not talking about acquiescing to the weaker brother in every case. In fact, he addresses both. I mean, if you look at verse three, he says, um, oh, where is it? I just lost it. If you look at verse three, he says, those who eat must not despise those who abstain and those who abstain must not pass judgment on those who eat for God has welcomed them. So immediately from the jump, you see Paul getting to the root of the issue. He's addressing both what we would call the stronger brother who has the knowledge, who has the maturity, who does understand that this meat means nothing, it is tissue that has been cooked, and I can consume this tissue, and it will serve as nutrition for my body and allow my body to keep on ticking and keep on living, whereas someone else who's the weaker brother sees that there's some spiritual significance to this flesh. There's something something special about it that it must be abstained from, or maybe it's unclean. It's something that needs to be avoided. And Paul, he's saying No. He's saying the one who is the stronger brother is not to despise the weaker. The one who is weaker is not to despise the stronger. And what that means is is that that word means to look upon them with contempt or to look down on them, to look at them as less than, oh, I can't believe you would eat that. Oh my goodness. You're just, you must not be a real Christian if you're going to eat that, if you're going to do that, if you're going to say that. Oh, well, I can't believe you're so immature that you don't understand that this is actually okay and it's no big deal. That's what he's talking about. The idea is that the stronger brother that sees another's weakness doesn't use that as an opportunity for pride to puff themselves up and to despise the weaker brother or look down on him, but remains humble. But the one who's weaker is actually given a different instruction. He's not to pass judgment on the stronger brother. The danger is that the weaker brother, whenever he's filled with this sense of sanctimonious pride in his own heart, he will speak evil against his brother. He's going to pass judgment on the stronger brother who understands his liberty. The warning is that the weaker does not need to insist on, on implementing his own standard and binding his conviction upon the stronger brother. And This is not some standard that everyone needs to meet. It's not something that, you know, it's not like a toddler throwing a tantrum gets their way. They want the candy bar in the checkout lane, and so you're going to give them what they want. You don't pass judgment on those who are engaging in this behavior. Love needs to be the ultimate rule overall, and that's ultimately what Paul is talking about in the preceding chapter in Romans 13. So to say that this has to do with this idea of, of, just being offended about every little thing and demanding that everybody just come to your level on this and kowtow to you, that's not the point at all. That's not what Paul's getting at.
1: Well, here's something that blew my mind. And if you're listening to this and you're, well, you would be listening to it, otherwise you wouldn't hear it. So you're listening to this and I want you to go through Romans 14 and go through 1 Corinthians 8 Here's what you'll never find. You'll never find Paul telling the weaker brother or instructing the weaker brother on what to say to the quote-unquote stronger brother or sister. What I mean by that is that if a Christian who is considered the stronger Christian, which in this context simply means they have a better understanding. that's all it means. It doesn't mean they're more faithful to God or anything like that. It simply means they are stronger in the sense of having a, a better understanding, more knowledge of the topic and situation at hand. You never ever see Paul giving the right of the weaker brother or giving the weaker brother the right to tell the stronger brother what to do. What is being addressed is the stronger brother, Paul is telling the stronger brother or sister what they need to do out of their own choice and out of their own love. This is something that they are choosing to do. Nobody is demanding this. The weaker brother or sister is not demanding anything out of the stronger brother or sister. This is a voluntary choice, a decision that Paul is saying because of love, when you know that this could offend someone, based on this particular situation and this subject, this is what love should cause you to do. But it's still a matter of a choice. It's still a uh, something that they are to do, not something that the weaker Christian says you have to do. <laughs> Paul's not giving this uh, them power or authority to say, "Hey, now, anytime someone offends you, you can use this against them." That's never. That's never there. You don't see that in Romans fourteen. You don't see that in First Corinthians eight. The same is also true. The opposite is that both parties within this context, the stronger and the weaker, are being talked to on what their responsibility is for themselves, how they are to handle their own actions, not how they're to police the actions of others. And it's sad that people have used this to to justify their policing of the actions of others. That's not what this context is dealing with. It's always about each individual making that choice to, okay, this is what out of love I probably should do, or out of love, what is the best thing to do in this situation? It's not someone came up to me and they're demanding that I do something because I offended them. That's nowhere. You can read Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 a hundred times tonight. You will never find that within context. That's not there.
0: Well, to that end, I have a question for you. I want to ask. Sure. Because this is, and I see what you're saying and I agree 100%. In application, what I wonder is what does that look like? Because it almost seems as if this can still be construed. I mean, I can hear myself from five years ago now saying, well, yeah, Kevin, if you don't give it up, because you got to give it up. You see, if you have a liberty and offends someone, you got to give it up. That's how I used to say it whenever <laughs> I would preach. You got to give it up yeah so if you have someone that does take offense to a particular thing and one thing I'm reminded of is we had a dear brother um that came and worshiped with us whenever we were still at Ratliff City who was a part of the group that um thought that eating in the church building was sinful they they thought that it was wrong. And so whenever he started coming and worshiping with us, we knew he had that predilection. We understood that that was his opinion on that matter. We didn't agree with him in the slightest, but we quit having potlucks after our fourth or fifth Sunday service. We quit doing that because we knew it would offend his conscience. We knew he wouldn't appreciate it. And in the interim, we we tried to study with him on this subject. He never came around. He never changed his mind. My question is, I can say that, well, if you don't give it up, you're not showing love. You're not showing Mm -hmm. Christian love. Could it then be said that if that stronger brother is not willing to give up that predilection, if our mainline or digressive, if you prefer, brothers and sisters in Christ are not willing to give up their individual communion cups and their sinful Bible classes, and I say that tongue in cheek, of course, if they're not willing to give those up, well, then you're not really showing love for me. So how would you respond to that if 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 Lee Grant from from six or seven years ago were to come up to Kevin Pendergrass from six or seven years ago and say, well, Kevin, I see what you're saying <laughs> about this idea about how this is an expression of love, but I'll
1: tell you what would happen. We would still be friends. You'd be an awesome chiropractor and we'd hang out all the time and go to the sushi <laughs> bar. That's exactly <laughs> what we did, man.
0: <laughs> that is what we did. But, but if, but if someone were to say that to you, if someone were to say, well, if you don't give this up, you're not showing love for your brother, how would you reply to that? What would you know, your response be? I for?
1: think that's a, a very fair question. So I, I'm going to read something and then I'm going to give you my answer. So I think Paul does address this in First Corinthians chapter 10, where this is verse 20. I'm going to, for context, I'm going to begin in verse 23. Okay. It all, says, right. all, th- all things are lawful. This First Corinthians 10. So we've jumped a couple of chapters later down the road here in Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. First First Corinthians 10, 23 says, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, then eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it if it offends you for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of your conscience. I do not mean necessarily your conscience, but his, for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? Now, we don't really read verse 29 much in this conversation. Why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? But I, I think that that's an important passage to bring in. Is at what point? Because Paul's Paul's here's here's what Paul's saying here. Let's just very quickly in layman's terms, what he's saying is is that if someone is offended and they don't want to eat meat, they have the responsibility not to ask, <laughs> because if they end up asking, then they may get offended, and if they get offended, now my freedom's being taken away by your conscience, and that is no longer loving on the side of the so-called weaker individual because now my freedom is being taken away. But you're saying, wait a minute, two chapters before that, Paul's talking about restricting your freedom. So to answer your question, I would first say that it's very difficult. It's very complex. But to, to, to say exactly where to draw that line, because I have known of churches who have catered for long periods of time to individuals. Um I don't know. Were they wrong for doing that? Were they right for doing that? Did it hinder the congregation's growth uh, for one member? Perhaps uh, if you know they wouldn't have caved in to this one member's conscience, could they have maybe grown and been able to bring other people to Christ? But because they are so busy babysitting, and I'm not saying babysitting in an ugly way, but babysitting this one individual's conscience that they weren't able to do that. I don't know. And those debates are had. But here is where I do think that the the Scripture is clear, is that never, even within that context, do we see Paul granting a right to accuse or to judge someone of saying, well, you're not being loving because you aren't doing what I'm asking you to do. In fact, Paul says the opposite. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 10, and he says that in Romans 14. You don't have a right to judge someone in that matter. And so I don't think anyone ever has a right to say, um, you're not being loving because you're not doing what I think needs to be done. I mean, that's that's nowhere in the context of those passages. What Paul is saying is there may be a case where I'm not being loving because I'm not looking out for the best of, for my brother and sister in Christ in this situation. I see it a lot like, you know, what do you do when it comes to withdrawing from a, a member who's toxic, who is destructive to the church? I mean, how many times should you visit them? On what issue should that be? Should the line be drawn? Um, after how long, uh, you know, how long should you give an individual? Those types of things we just really don't see. And the the word of the hour is wisdom, because that's where wisdom comes into play. But in short, I would look at each situation and evaluate it accordingly. And I think some situations are going to handle it differently. Um, but I do think that we cannot look at Romans 14 and first Corinthians eight without also looking at first Corinthians 10, where Paul says, should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience in Romans 14? Why should I be judged by the weaker brother? We have to take that into an account as well and say, to what extent do we, do we draw that line?
0: Well, and it also ties in the first to rather Romans 14 and verse 13, where he says, let us not judge one another anymore. Yeah. I mean, he's saying quit judging each other because, you know, the weaker brother's saying, well, you just don't love God enough because you're doing all these liberal things. The stronger brother says, well, you're just, you know, weak minded and don't know what you're talking about because you don't have knowledge. And the weaker brother says, well, you're not being very loving to me because you're right. doing this. The fingers are pointing at each other instead of recognizing those three fingers pointing so, back at themselves.
1: Yeah. And, and so here is, cause this is something I've thought a lot about and, and, I, I want to really try to, to get to the brass tacks here because, you know, you asked this question and those are questions like that people ask all the time. And I don't want to give a cop-out answer that says, well, it depends and each situation is different in wisdom. Because yeah, that but sounds-
0: that's true though. It, it, it is, is true though.
1: But but let me give you specifics on how I think wisdom played at, would play out in our situation, okay? Because people are like, okay, what would you say to Lee though? So if you came up to me today and I'm and I'm who I am today, but you are who you were back then, OK, and you you said, look, Kevin, I'm a, I'm a one cupper man and I love your brother. And uh, but, you know, I just I, I've been studying this issue on the one cup and I'm just convinced we only have to use one. I mean, what like, like what, what should we do? I mean, what should I do in that situation? So in that particular situation, the first question I would ask is, is this something that you really believe is actually affecting your faith in God? Because that's what Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 first and foremost are talking about. Yeah. These these are, and that's why I'm I'm always very cautious to point out that these are doctrinal issues to them in this context. This is something that meant the difference between following Jesus and not following Jesus. This isn't just I got my feelings hurt. This isn't a preference. This is this is affecting me so much where I could lose my faith if I see you do this.
0: Yeah, they're pledging fealty to a false or to another God by eating that meat. Yeah.
1: So if if you if 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 we were having if we were friends, we were having this conversation, I'd say, Well, Lee, let me ask you, do you really feel like that you're gonna lose your faith in God if you are gonna partake of multiple containers for the Lord's Supper? And that would be the first question. And if you go, yeah, Kevin, I really, I really do feel, feel like that. I really feel that way. My next question would be, well, then why are you coming to a multiple church congregation where there's one cup church down the street now? now But but in, in all seriousness, my next question would be, well, if there are believers who are doing the things that you think need to be done, then wouldn't wisdom demand that you follow within that group and not judge us for doing what we're doing because it doesn't violate our conscience. We don't think there's anything wrong with it, but we also respect the fact that you think there is. And so because there's another place you can go and worship, then that's where I believe wisdom would dictate you you to go. I mean, I I've seen this with churches all the time when they churches of Christ begins to hand clap or they begin to use instrumental music. people say, "Well, this offends some of our members," well, my my, my question is, look, I understand that, but how many churches of Christ are there within this same area that that don't clap or that don't have instrumental music that they're able to go to? Um, and so that that would be personally how I'd handle it if there isn't another place for you to go to, to, to partake of the one cup. I don't know really what I would do. I'm not, I'm not sure. Maybe for a short period of time, we would say for this brother in Christ, let's, you know, we're, we're, we're going to only use one container. I don't know. I'm I'm not sure because Paul does seem to be pretty adamant about the importance of, of really working for that, for that brother. Um, he says, if, if I never, if, if, like, if eating meat offends you, I'll never eat meat again. I mean, that's pretty strong language. I think that's probably hyperbolic, but I, I do think that there is an element where churches do have to take things, and I think each person has to be taken into consideration. I mean, you know, if if this is a person who's been to every church and every, it's kind of got a reputation and they're just going, that's one thing. But if this is someone who I really think is sincere, how do we judge that? I don't know. We, yeah. we have to be around that person. And th- this it, it really is, though, something that I think is layered and complex but but you have to take into consideration both of those sides but I don't ever think that someone has a right to go to a church or even the congregation they're at and say well you need to do this because this offends my my conscience uh, if if anything those individuals would say well we've heard that you don't like this is there something we can do to work around this to make you feel more comfortable I think that's really Pauls telling both work together Try to work together for unity's sake.
0: Well, one of the things that really stands out to me is it seems really clear whenever you look at all of this together within context, that if everybody that is involved has the right attitude, everybody's going to get along. Everything's going to go well. The stronger brother is going to bear with the scruples of the weaker brother, we might say. And the weaker brother is going to learn to recognize the goodness that is in the stronger brother. And that maybe the predilection that they have is not sinful in and of itself. And you know, one of the examples that, that I can, that I can think of that comes to mind is, is the hair doctrine again, you know, to go ahead and we'll drag that dead horse out and beat <laughs> it a little bit more, but like. For That's a,
1: become a popular episode.
0: It has. And I'm, I'm really, really shocked that it's as popular as what it is, but Um, I'm cool. Hey, thank you all for listening. Share it with your friends. But, you know, for so long, for so long, Kim would refuse to cut her hair because she, you know, that's what she had been taught. And as she began to question that idea, she still wasn't willing to go through with it and get a haircut because she was like, well, you know, what if, what if? And then as she, as she studied, as she grew, as I studied and we discussed it, you know, she came to the conclusion that, you know, Paul didn't have uncut hair in mind in this, and it wouldn't be a sin to do it. But even then, she waited a while. And the reason why she waited a while is because she didn't want to, for lack of a better term, trigger, you know, some of her brethren that did still share that conviction. Eventually she got to the point where she recognized that many of the good sisters in the church that we were a part of that did cut their hair that were still incredibly godly women. They were, they were loving. They exemplified the love of Christ. They 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 were an excellent representation of what a Christian ought to be in this world. Even though they had bangs, even though they trimmed their hair, even though they didn't have split ends, they still accurately and more than adequately represented Jesus to the world at large. And she saw. Well, you know, I had this conviction. And here I am sitting back on my haunches and judging these sisters as being weak whenever they're actually a whole lot stronger Christian than a lot of these other women that I know that have never, that have never let scissors touch their hair a day in their lives. And at that moment, she was like, you know, this is more, Christ is more than, than eating and drinking. Christ is more than food. Christ is more than hair. And she got a haircut. Now, at the same time, our daughters have—they've grown up. They never did hear the idea of the uncut hair doctrine. You know, they were never beat over the head with it by me or by Kim. But it's still something that they have never done. Neither one of my daughters, McKinley or Riley, have ever had a haircut. Now, Riley once cut a chunk of her hair out when she was about four or five years old in the back of a van, and she flipped out. She bawled like crazy because she just knew she was going to get in trouble. Kim and I got on to her for it, and we laughed about it, and it was all good, but neither one of them have got a haircut yet. They're not ready for it, and we recognize that, and we're not going to push them one way or another. You have to, oh, you have to keep your hair long. Oh, hey, no, let's go get that haircut. Let's go get We're using wisdom in that situation with other people, That have a different predilection. We fully recognize that they may have a conviction about the hair that runs counter to what we believe, but we're not going to judge them for that. The hard part comes in not judging others whenever you're in that mindset and you're in that, that mode of thinking. Like one of the things we talked about in that episode is those in the one cup group that held that predilection would often look at other congregations in which sisters cut their hair as being a weaker congregation. And the irony is, is now it seems like those that, you know, those, those, they're actually the stronger congregations in in some ways you might say, but in any case, I don't know if that made any sense at all. I kind of rambled more than I anticipated <laughs> that I would, no, but well, no, go ahead. No, nah, no, nah, that's it. I'm done.
1: Well, I was just, I was just going to say that there's, cause I, cause to flesh this out, um, I, I want to give a few examples and just talk this out in practice. Practical terms, pragmatically, because I think it's important for people to see. Okay, what what exactly then does this look like? Perhaps in your situation, or in my situation, or someone else's situation. Because th- this is not going away anytime soon. And as more churches of Christ are changing, which they are, there are so many churches of Christ who are changing, and I, I firmly believe for the better. In fact, I at my uh, grandfather's um, visitation this past weekend. Uh, there was quite a few folks who came uh, to the visitation I was able to talk to, and I talked to a couple of people who went to, who, who still go to a, what I would consider a very conservative Church of Christ, but they had heard about my book and heard about some of the things I've changed on, and, and the response was positive, because when they first brought it up, I thought, oh no, <laughs> you know, this this isn't going to be good. Uh, they said, yeah, we, we've heard you've changed over the past few years, and I'm like, oh boy, uh, here, here we go. go, you know, I'm about to, I'm about uh, to get
0: ambushed ambush here.
1: Know, but uh, but then it was, well, I would like to talk to you about that further. And I've had questions, too. And, you know, we've been talking about this in our in our some group of our friends and and, and things are changing. People are asking more questions. People are becoming more educated. People are becoming more exposed to different ideas. And, and once you become exposed to something, you can't just, un, you know, unsee it. You can't forget about it. I mean, once you understand a, a doctrine or you hear a position that's there. And so now you have to do something with it. So what happens as Churches of Christ, especially, because most of our listeners, I would say, probably are still predominantly Churches of Christ or with that background, as churches change and develop, then what? And I I can't tell you, Lee, how many times I've seen Churches of Christ literally die. And when I say die, I mean they had to physically close their doors because there wasn't enough members. Two, 300-member churches five to 10 years prior, no joke to, to them closing their doors, but they had to because as they were changing the leadership leadership was changing they realized that hey we've been we've been following tradition more than we have Jesus and we need to change and when they started changing a lot of their older members and not just older members some other members got upset about that and when that when they got upset about that what ended up happening is instead of the leadership saying, well, let's have lessons on this, let's let's educate you on where we're at and not just educate them, but let's listen to what you have to say. Is this mere tradition or is this something that you really believe is true? And, and let's have conversation about this. Instead of doing that, they caved in to those members who didn't want to change anything and what ended up happening is a lot of the church ended up leaving because they were willing, they were wanting to live in more freedom. And there's plenty of churches where you can find a lot more freedom out there. So they were, instead of changing, the church decided we're not going to change. And if, and if you want to go somewhere else, then you can go somewhere else. Uh, those who believe in more freedom. Well, what ended up happening is those leaders, those leaders, even though they believed in more freedom, they'd never experienced that freedom because they were too afraid of what would happen to these other members. What they didn't realize is that they were still doing the same thing. They were just doing it to the to another group of Christians. And this is what I, I've talked to elderships about this. Whenever you bring in a new act of, uh, or, or a new some sort of addition to your worship service, maybe you are allowing now women to pray, or maybe you're having an instrument of music, whatever it might be. Maybe you're just now teaching more grace-centered, inclusive messages. You're going to offend people especially if you have taught tradition for many years of your life in the churches of Christ. When you start changing, you're going to offend people. But here's the thing. You're going to offend someone if you choose not to pursue that freedom you now believe in. Yeah. <laughs> and so one it's way catch or another, 22. Yeah. People, are, people are going to leave your church. I mean, if if, if you are progressing in your leadership, Based upon the knowledge of Scripture and based upon your understanding of Jesus and you realize things need to change and you change, you're going to lose people. If you realize things need to change and you don't change, you're going to lose people. So the, the, the problem is that most people don't realize is this is going to happen one way or the other. Churches who are constantly just giving in to the weaker ultimately are offending another part of the congregation. And I know personally a church who they were 250, 300 years, uh, 250, 300 a few years ago, not a few hundred years ago, but they were a few hundred years ago. And uh, now three or four years later, man, they're down to under a hundred. And people are continuously leaving. Why? Because they're not doing the things they need to do. And if you were to ask them why, they go, well, if we do, we're going to run people away. You've already ran off two thirds of your church, man. So, so people don't often see it though that way. And and of course there's politics, you know, there's money. And a lot of times, unfortunately, people want to know who's got the biggest pocketbooks. And that's the ones that we're going to give into the scruples of that brother and sister in Christ, because they're the ones keeping us going.
0: They're keeping Um, the lights on. Which which that's,
1: politics that's not what we're talking about but that that does come into play unfortunately way too many times when it comes to these types of decisions and that's what is used it's camouflaged under that well we don't want to offend our older members aka we don't want to tick off the the donors is what it comes down to so but that's not in all situations like i said i'm i kind of get worked up on stuff like this because i have been behind the curtain and i have seen things happen like that time and time again and churches die because of a misunderstanding on these passages. But I think you said it best when Paul's point is both people operating under the premise of love. When both people do that, the weaker is not going to be demanding anything and the stronger is not going to be enforcing a freedom on the weaker if they don't want to do it because love takes care of that. Now that's in a perfect world and we don't live in a perfect world, but that's the principle that Jesus is teaching. And I do want to bring up this story just real quick because if if, for those who are listening thinking, well, wait a minute, Kevin, are you saying that there are times where you're talking about all these churches splitting and, and things of that nature and splits are inevitable at times anyway? Well, doesn't that mean if we do something knowing it's going to offend somebody, Doesn't that mean that we've done something wrong? Doesn't that mean that we're in sin? No. And let me give you an example. In Mark chapter three, and there's several examples of this, but Mark chapter three, one through six, Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath in front of a group of people who he knows it is going to offend. Now, Jesus could have healed the man the day before the Sabbath. Jesus could have waited to the day after the Sabbath and gone in and healed the man. And in doing so, he could have avoided offending the scribes and Pharisees. But Jesus purposefully and often Heals people not on just any day of the week, but if you notice, there's a trend in the in the gospel accounts. When does, for whatever reason, Jesus loves to heal people on the one day he knows it's going to tick people off. <laughs> I don't think this is by accident, because Jesus could have said, you know, I, I'm going to wait just a few more hours and I'm going to come back and heal you, because I know that you know for the, for the sake of conscience, I don't want to accidentally offend the scribes and just didn't do that. Jesus was making a point, and here's what I think the point is. And this is what I think the point is in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Jesus, or Paul opens up 1 Corinthians 8 by saying what? We all have knowledge, but knowledge puffs up. Love edifies. Love is the framework. The scribes and Pharisees were getting mad because they had a lack of love for people. Jesus, I think, was showing the scribes and Pharisees that if there is ever a time when doing the right thing is going to make someone mad, but treating, treating someone the right way or healing someone or showing compassion, if that's going to anger you, I'm going to do it anyway, because that's how important love is. There, yeah. are, there may be times when loving someone, showing compassion towards someone, doing something is going to upset the religious elite. But when it comes time to loving someone, Paul himself says that's what this whole law, if we want to call it a law, precept, instruction, principle, whatever we want to call it, it's all based upon the idea of love. That's the underlining premise. And so when Jesus is healing, going around healing people on the Sabbath, I don't think he's doing it just to make people mad. Don't misunderstand me. I don't think Jesus is saying, well, how many people- He's not
0: trolling people. Yeah, he's not trolling people.
1: But what, what he is doing- is he showing them this is what really matters. This is what really matters. And when love, the thing that really matters, offends us, then we're the ones who need to change. (laughs) We're the ones who need to be educated. Because at that point, we're no longer dealing with just a weaker brother. We're dealing with a stubborn brother at that point. And there is a big difference between a weak Christian and a stubborn Christian. And Jesus makes that point all the time.
0: No, I think that's a really, really strong point, and that makes a lot of sense. And I mean, I'm in full agreement with you, and it's not really, I mean, it's something that I have noticed before, but it never has really been brought to light as you just brought it to light. Jesus did have a habit of healing on the Sabbath. And one habit that Jesus had over and over and over again throughout his life and throughout his ministry was allowing his love and his compassion for others to supersede the rigors and the structure of law itself. I mean, whenever he healed the leper by touching him, like, like you said before, he didn't have to touch him to heal him. He could have said, be healed. I mean, we remember who, who was it? Jarius's daughter, I think it was, where she wasn't even there. And he's like, yeah, she's healed. Yeah, it's good. Go on. Yeah, yeah, she's fine. She's healed this very hour. He could have done that with a leper. He could have pointed at him and said, you're healed. He could have said, yep, you know what? You go." He could have done a pull of Naaman the leper on him and told him, yeah, go wash in the River Jordan seven times. You'll be healed. Do what Naaman did. You'll be healed. Jesus could have healed him however he wanted to, yet he chose to touch him. Jesus could have healed any time he wanted to, yet he chose to heal on the Sabbath right then in terms of that immediacy. And I I think that really does illustrate the point. Sometimes doing the right thing, and that right thing may be different for different groups of people. That right thing is going to be different for different congregations. You know, whether it's, you know, introducing, maybe it's introducing an instrumental service, maybe it's omitting an instrumental service that may be the right thing for two different congregations.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and that, that's that's why the Bible cannot, I cannot emphasize this enough, the Bible cannot be looked at as some sort of cosmic dictionary that answers all of our questions. I mean, it, 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 it lends us to make decisions based upon wisdom and based upon getting to know one another. And, you know, you and I both, and I still seek this out, man. I want to know, okay, just tell me, like, yes or no, true or false. And that's not the way that the Bible is written or communicates anything. I I mean, the New Testament, the Bible doesn't even relate to itself that way. So why in the world do we think we should 2,000 years ago relate to the Bible in that way?
0: Well, and dude, that's exactly where this tyranny of the weaker brother, that's where this doctrine emanates because we take these passages in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 and to a much, much, much lesser extent, 1 Corinthians 10, as, as you pointed out tonight, we take those passages and what do we do? We take them and we checklist them. We take them and we approach them in that manner to determine how exactly liberty is to work and what are the limits of my liberty and what can I do in liberty? And if someone's offended, what do I do? I need to give it up. I'm going to give it up. And we do that because that's comfortable. That's what we know. That's the means by which we have approached Scripture for years, maybe for the entirety of our Christian life. There is no nuance there. There is no wisdom there. And the reason for that is because it is so much easier to do it that way. It is so much easier just to say, what is the application here? How do I condense it down to its essence, formulate a checklist and introduce a law to follow it's so much easier to put on those legalistic lenses and approach this through that framework of law than it is to engage in nuance and realize, you know what, maybe there are some in this this phrase would drive people crazy. It used to drive me crazy, and, I, and now I don't even understand why it did. Maybe there are some situational ethics in which this applies in different ways in different situations at different times for different people. Maybe that's the case. But the legalist doesn't allow that to happen. The legalistic mindset says, no, this is something that needs to be applied in a rigid way that has a a manner of an umbrella of things that it can cover, but it needs to be specifically defined and specifically applied in a specific way. Otherwise, you can just make it mean whatever you want it to mean and do whatever you want. That's what the legalist would say. That's what I used to say. But whenever you look at this. For what it actually means within its context, it becomes more apparent that Paul is saying love needs to rule everything. You need to use wisdom and defer to one another and show love for one another. Quit judging each other and recognize that each of you are sanctified by Jesus. Each of you are followers of God. Even if you disagree on this, don't violate the dictates of your conscience, but don't bind it on someone else either.
1: Yeah. Well, I just want to reiterate that it all goes back to, in in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8, is someone losing their faith over this issue, whatever issue it might be. I have yet to know or meet any Christian who has used Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 as a do-what-I-want-to-do card who was in the process of losing their faith. They, they, they were, you know. Now, there may be some out there. Don't get me wrong, but most of those in those situations, it wasn't about losing their faith. It was about they wanted to get their way. Romans fourteen and first Corinthians is not about people wanting to get their way. It's about people on the verge of losing their faith.
0: Now, I'm, I'm glad you said that. I'd, I'd like to keep that in mind. And if it's okay with you, I know we talked about this for a while, and it seems like we're, we're finding just a natural endpoint to the conversation but before we wrap it up i'd like to circle back around to that answer and how you would answer that you know we talked about that a minute ago yeah. if someone were to say well you're not acting in love blah 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 and you and you said that you would reply well is this causing you to lose your faith I couldn't help but think if if you were asking me that from, you know, from 5 or 6 years ago, my answer would be no. It's not causing me to lose my faith, but I do feel as though my soul would be in jeopardy if I don't if I do anything but partake of one cup. And I feel like your soul is in jeopardy too. I'm yeah. convinced I'm convinced and I'm convicted that your soul is in jeopardy because you're not partaking of one cup. So, and that may add another wrinkle. You may want not want to go down that rabbit hole, but it, like how, that's how I could see myself replying to that question. So no, it's not causing me to lose my faith in Jesus. No, it's not causing me to go after another, you know, go after another God or a false God or to pledge my loyalty to an idol. But I do feel as though my soul would be on the line in this case. So w- how would you deal with that?
1: Yeah. So. And this is where the tension. Maybe a loaded
0: question, but
1: no, I think it's a it's a good question. This is where the tensions created, right? Because people yeah. who, you know, when I believed instrumental music was wrong, I would say, well, people need to give it up, not just for me, but because I think that they're going to go to hell if they keep using it. And if I participated in it, I would go to go to hell too. And you would you would yeah. have felt the same way, yes, up until probably quite recently on the one cup. So the, the one who is not doing the practice or abstaining from what they think is wrong, obviously would say, yes, I do think that this is a matter that is, quote unquote, a heaven or hell issue or whatever it may be. So I, I have several ways that I would answer that, depending on who I'm talking to. The first the first would be to go to 1 John 3.20 to say, well, are we dealing more with the feeling or are we dealing more with with reality? Uh, because 1 John 3.20 says, even if our hearts condemn us, if we feel condemned, that we know that God is greater than our hearts and He knows every everything. In other words, Paul or John is saying that we're still saved. We can still know we're saved, even if we feel condemned in a certain matter, even if there's some feelings of uncertainty, that doesn't affect the fact that we are still saved. And so for some people, is this just more a feeling? Uh, is that what it is? Or is this a true conviction? And there's a difference between a feeling and a conviction. I may have feelings of doubt from time to time, or I may question things. But I don't mean I'm convicted on it. Uh, so that would be one way that I would answer it. Another way I would answer it is to try to engage in a in a study, um, to try to say, well, let's let me explain why I don't think that's the case. But during that time, I would say probably a lot of Churches wouldn't do that, but I do think that's when a church could actually win over someone who is losing their faith um, by saying, "Well, let's okay then. If that's how you feel right now, we're we're gonna we're gonna change things up during during this short amount of time." I've never met a congregation who've who've gone to gr- to great extents. You talked about um, not eating after church services or having a kitchen and things of that nature. And I've known of churches who've done similar things at least for a temporary time, but actually to change up the whole dynamic like that of saying we're going to change the way we do our whole worship for this one person, that in and of itself might would change that person. It'd <laughs> be like, whoa, okay, wait, guys, you guys don't really have to do that for me. Um, I don't know if many churches would do that, but I think that is certainly a possibility and not out of context of Romans 14 or First Corinthians 8. I do think that there would have, have to be some sort of duration on that because otherwise once that word gets out someone else would say well i heard you did this for so and so so i want to start doing this uh and i think you know this offends me so i want to start seeing that i mean to to what extent do you take that i don't know i don't have the answer i don't think there is i don't think there is a definitive answer um but once again i would fall back on if there are other congregations that are already practicing the way that you feel is biblical then you don't have a right to come over to my congregation and tell me what you think is right per Romans yeah. 14 and 1 Corinthians 8. And so if it's a situation where you believe something and if we didn't change to accommodate that at least temporary, uh, te- temporarily and you would lose your faith, I do think that the church, at least up front, would need to accommodate you um, for for a time being. Uh, but if, you know, after a period of time, you still feel that way and the congregation says, look, you know, we, we've tried to educate you on this. We're, we're not going to change on this. We've studied this with you. We're still convinced, convinced. I don't know. I honestly don't know. Um, because I think that when it comes to someone's faith, someone keeping their faith, we need to do everything we possibly can. That's why I'm not... A proponent of the the us versus them mentality. I mean, I left yeah. legalism, but I love legalists, man. I, I that's you know, I was that's that's where I came from, and I know that mindset very well. I have so much empathy uh, and compassion for people in that mindset because they they love Jesus, man. And in, in a situation like that. I, I think we all, we just always have to be careful. I mean, you brought up how there may be times where a church doesn't need to use instrumental music. And I amen that a hundred percent because it's not about figuring out the best way to worship in the sense of what's gonna, you know, be the most attractive to one or two people. It's what's the best for that community? What's the best for that church community? And another another element, one more thing, another element that's that's missing in this conversation, I think, is they did church much differently than we do church today, <laughs> You, they they couldn't just pop on over to the to the church right across the street from them if they didn't like what was happening. They were a true community, and we just talked about this with uh, you know not not too long ago with with Doctor Bass. We had him on, and we discussed the importance of church community. That's today we don't really have a lot of that in our churches. It's just showing up a couple hours a week and worship you know public publicly worshiping and that's it. So back then this this was a a whole different situation than what we're talking about today when it comes to certain worship acts, which we didn't mean for this to veer off just into worship service, because this could be anything, but that's usually where this that's usually where this becomes attention in churches is the worship service. Someone wants to change something in the worship service. Or someone wants to, you know, not do something in the worship service because they think it's wrong or whatever it might be. But The point is, is that they had a community back then. And whereas today we have more organizations. (laughs) And so if someone can find a community in which they worship the way that they believe is best based upon their conviction and study, that's what they should do. And that's what we're doing anyway. I mean, that's there's. The more people study their Bible, Lee, there's not less denominations. There's more denominations. I mean, you you mean, you know, up until the printing press, everyone was Roman Catholic. And then you uh, had the printing press and everybody started creating their own denomination because everybody started reading the Bible and coming to their own understanding. So I actually think that God's accommodating that, that there are going to be different especially in Expressions. our culture. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And so back then they didn't have the option of, oh, well, there's a church down the street and they never eat meat, sacrificed to idols, but we do every Sunday on our potluck. So you just go there and worship with them. They didn't have that. We do. We do have that availability. So if someone can worship somewhere else, still keep their faith to God, then I think the first explanation is: Well, go somewhere else. Don't come here and try to change us. <laughs> like you know, go go somewhere else. If you believe what we're doing is wrong, don't come here. Because then you're doing what First Corinthians 10 says, and you're asking, you're asking where this meat came from. Well, just if you're going to come here, sit here and eat it without asking questions.
0: Yeah. Well, and I'm I'm glad that you said that as we you know get ready to get this wrapped up. You know, we did spend the majority of this particular episode talking about. Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians eight through the lens of church activity and doing church and worship and doctrinal practices, but in, it, it rears its head in so many other ways. And it's such a wide ranging issue, which is why we, we wanted to do an, an episode on this. Like the situation I spoke of earlier, where I didn't really want to out anybody that didn't have anything to do with doing church at all. It had nothing to do with worship services. It had everything to do with particular life choices and decisions that we would make as it related to our dress, for example. Um, that's one area in which, you know, this can rear its head, you know, and in, in even the things you eat and drink. I mean, this is something that, you know, where Paul says in Romans 14, you know, um, about eating meat or drinking wine. There are people that have used this passage to condemn social drinking. Well, then- You know, you shouldn't drink social, which we did an episode on social drinking and on alcohol and on the kind of wine Jesus made. You can look through the archives and you can find that episode and listen to it. If you haven't already, it's a dandy. You'll enjoy it. So go back and give that a listen. If you haven't already, it's one of our few, few episodes. It's under an hour in length. So go check that out. (laughs) Um, But there are people that have used that. Well, hey, it offends me that you're drinking this. So you don't need to drink that. And. You know, it's it's just, it just goes to show, and I bring that up to say this, that this is one of those topics that has a wide breadth. It, yeah. It's not just limited to worship issues. It's not just listed, limited to doctrinal issues or church issues or things like that. It, it can permeate and its tendrils can extend into almost every facet of someone's life. And the ultimate thing that it all boils down to is dealing with one another in love and bearing with one another and respecting one another and growing and becoming a mature enough Christian to recognize that not all your brothers and sisters are going to share every single conviction that you share. And to recognize that even in spite of those differences, God recognizes them and justifies them and sanctifies them anyway. Yeah. Just because they sin differently than you do doesn't mean they're lost. Just because they live their lives differently than you do doesn't mean they're lost. Just because they worship differently than you do doesn't mean they're lost, and it doesn't mean you have the right to be offended by it.
1: Yep, and Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 are not meant to be a one-size-fits-all answer book on what happens when someone's offended. I I mean, I, I think that... You you did a good job earlier in saying d- different situations call for different actions, and one church you may need to forego something. Another church you may need not to forego something. It uh, just depends. I mean, Paul certainly didn't feel like he needed to give in to the weaker brother uh, when John Mark wanted to go with him on a missionary journey. You know, he, he's like, I don't I don't want you with me, man. Um, so there are some cases, yes. And by the way, later he said, I need John Mark. He's, he's a value, you know, he's valuable to me now, (laughs) but I mean, it's, and and I think that just has to change our, we have to change our whole framework for how we view the Bible and how we view the world in our situations, because we want the Bible just to answer everything for us every, you know, in every little turn and corner, instead of the, just saying, we don't know. I mean, we, we have to do the best. That we can, and that can be difficult. I mean, I there's a lot of decisions I regret as soon as I make them, and I'm like, oh, I shouldn't have handled it this way. Yeah. And we're constantly learning. And and you know, there are some people who I think probably at times we we should have drawn lines sooner. Others we drew lines way too quickly. And you know, because there's a lot of toxicity that comes with certain Christians, and then Paul talks about that Romans 16. We at times have to make those. Uh, distinctions. Now, we will not condemn them. I don't. I don't have that right. But uh, there's some people I don't need to be around. And so, how do we make those decisions? How do we make those judgment calls? That's going to be up to each individual, each situation. A lot goes into it. It's very complex and very layered.
0: It absolutely is. And I think the fact that we've talked about this, and I, I think we, I think we've done a good job on it tonight. But I mean, we barely even, we didn't even give any examples of. Well, we gave very, very few examples of how this would relate to just Christian living in general. And I think that's a testament to just how broad this topic is. is it's something that you can literally plug almost anything into the eating meat section, and it's going to apply, and it's going to fit. It's going to work. Yeah. And it just goes to show why wisdom is so important in reading Scripture and in how we approach the Scriptures. So do you have anything else you want to add before we wrap it up, brother?
1: The only thing I have down that I wanted to say— is when you look at Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, I think a fair summarization would be we should not be judged by anybody else's conscience. Our freedom should not be judged by anybody else's conscience, but we should also always be uh, empathetic toward everybody's conscience. So uh, we don't need to be judged by it, but we need to be empathetic. And I think that's the point Paul's making
0: because that is the position you take when you love someone. And I think that's spot on, brother. That's extremely well said. Well, to our audience, we thank you all. We love you all. We appreciate you all. We thank you so much for your continued patronage and sharing our podcast with others and in listening. Um, We have almost 30, well, over 32,000 downloads as of the release of this episode, which is, it blows my mind that that we're reaching that wide of an audience. And that's amazing. Kevin and I have some cool things uh coming on the horizon that that we're excited about and we're hoping to clue you guys in sometime either towards the end of the year or maybe the first of this next year some really cool things are at work here we're stoked to to share some new things with you guys and some new opportunities and some stuff that we think you guys will love in the meantime though so that we can achieve those goals share this podcast with your friends share it with your neighbors share it with your enemies they need jesus too um Give us that five-star review on iTunes. We appreciate that. Um, Whatever platform you listen on, if there's another platform you'd like us to be on, let us know. I think we're on almost everything. Um, Just let us know. If you have any questions, any topic suggestions, anything you'd like to hear, drop us a line. Uh, We'd love to hear from you guys. We love hearing from our audience. We try to get back to the folks that write to us. Sometimes it can take a little while. Kevin and I are both busy, but we do what we can. And if you're so inclined and you're on social media, that cesspool that is Facebook, we do have a discussion group. For our podcast. Um, apply to join it. There's some questions you'll answer and then you'll get plugged into the group and you can join the conversation. We thank you all. We love you all. Have a good night.